It is half past the hour of three o'clock. Oh, what? We are here at the Asheville Road Church of Christ. You're listening to the 66 podcast. For a minute, I thought we were on the radio. Oh yeah, something, something uh, live here, giving us the time. That's what we do. We're, we're basically. No, we ne- on the radio. we've never done that. Kind right? of, not really. We like to think we are. Uh, but this is the 66 podcast. If you're uh, listening to us for the first time, we go through the Bible in a three-step process. We read, think, and apply. Um, We usually break it up to about a chapter or two every episode. Um, And we definitely have kind of slowed our pace here with the Gospel of John that we are in today. Um, I'm Andrew Kingsley with Drew Kaiser, and we are in John chapter 11. And we have reached a point in Jesus' ministry where there is open oppression. Well, not really oppression. There will be at the end of this chapter. But there is open um, dislike for Jesus among the Jews. They've tried to arrest him. They've tried to stone him a few times already. But it's not really... I guess they're not actively seeking to kill him. You know, there's been a few times he's caused trouble. They've tried to stone him. Yeah, trying to stone him qualifies yeah. as actively seeking to kill him. Well, I guess maybe plotting. Should be I think we see word. that at the end of this chapter, don't we? Yes, and that's what I'm getting to. There's, there's, They've tried to stone him, but they're not sitting around and plotting. Organizing it. Right. Yeah, I see what you mean. Right, and that's going to happen by the end of this chapter. Uh, it's a very interesting story that leads us to that point, to get the Jews to be that much more malicious against Christ, but I don't want us to make it sound like that the point of this chapter is the Jews being upset with Christ. The point of the mm-hmm. chapter is this final sign uh, that we're going to see from Christ here in the book of John, and that has to do with the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Yeah, so basically before the resurrection of Lazarus, we have a lengthy prelude to it, which is very important to the miracle. And in fact, the prelude is longer than the verses describing the miracle. Uh, and it makes it very effective. It all starts at the top of the chapter while in Galilee, Jesus learns that a family that is very special to him is in trouble. So John says that a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, He doesn't spell it out, but Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are brothers and sisters. And uh, he says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Um... You know, John does a little foreshadowing here in identifying Mary, assuming we already know the story of the woman wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. He tells that story later in chapter 12. Uh, but these are the sisters that are described in Luke 10, 38 and following, who served Jesus in their home, Martha being the one who was busy and distracted, and Mary the one sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from him. And so uh, I think it's interesting to to watch how consistent John is with these characters because Mary and Martha in the Gospel of John act very much like Mary and Mar- Martha in the other Gospel accounts. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about before that John 
was written later than the first three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He was aware of them, and so there's not a whole lot of repeat material. So the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called synoptics, uh, meaning seeing the same things. And John John is uh, out there on his own doing his own thing. Um, so this family lived in Bethany, a village just about two miles east of Jerusalem. And he stopped there frequently as he made trips to Jerusalem. And they were very, uh, very close to him, as verse 5 reveals, when it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And, you know, we know Jesus loved the whole world, but we take this to mean that he loved them in a special way, and uh, these three were like family to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, his actions in, in that regard are very strange when you look at verse 6, because John tells us that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So verses 5 and 6 are juxtaposed together to give us something really strange or ironic it almost is, is as if, and I think this is the way John means for us to read it, that because Jesus loved them, he stayed where he was two days longer than he had to. Which uh, makes sense when, I guess you consider the you whole If you know scene, the end of the story. Yeah, 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 when he gets there. But it doesn't make any sense if, you don't, if you're right in the middle of the story or you're just reading it for the first time. What you're you scratching think? your head wondering, why doesn't he get going? I might just say this for the next section, but what do you think about, do you think he didn't go back just for the for the sake of making sure that Lazarus could die so that he could raise him from the dead? Because do, do you think if he went back and there's this whole scene of everyone weeping and crying and thinking he's about to die and maybe Mary and Martha come to him and say, hey, heal him, do you think that there's... Uh, Kaufman says something along these lines in his commentary. Do you think that there's maybe, he knows if he goes, then he's going to be very tempted Pressured to, to heal do Lazarus rather, rather than, than to let him die him. and then raise him? Because he says he alludes oh, definitely, to that. Definitely, he would, he would have been pressured 14 to do it. and 15, he alludes to that. Uh, yeah. and um, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Right, right. He intends to bring him back from death. Mm-hmm. He intends to do something very public, and uh, not that he hasn't already done this before, but uh, he intends to do something big here, bigger than than healing somebody. Yeah. Uh, and that was definitely on his mind, along with other things, I believe. Now, there is also a debate as to the wisdom of his going, and the disciples are kind of arguing over that, and you see in verse 14, he tells them plainly that Lazarus has died which is different from what he was saying in verse 4 to them. He said this illness does not lead to death. And, of course, it didn't. It ended in life. But to them, they probably sat back and relaxed and thought, oh, he's not going to die. And uh, later he says that he's asleep in verse 11. But then he just, they're clearly not getting what he's saying. So he says he's dead. And he says, "For for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe let us go to him. And this is when Thomas comes in, called the twin, and he said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. If you think back on our podcast a few weeks ago when we discussed Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, it got very, very hot there. Not temperature-wise, 
but controversy-wise. Yeah. Uh, you know, he almost died, as he said, before Abraham was I am, and retreated east of the Jordan River out where John had been baptizing into the wilderness there to kind of get away and let the controversy die down a little bit. And so Thomas just knows that they're about to get killed. He he thinks of this as a suicide mission, and that's the explanation behind his complaint there in verse 16. But they, they go down to visit. They really have no choice. And when they arrive, they see that Lazarus had been dead for four days. Uh, so Mary and Martha, uh, they hear that he has come, and they are true to character. And like I said, this is very consistent with the other gospel accounts description. Now, just to remind you, back at the at the end of Luke chapter 10, you know, Martha was the one who was distracted with much serving. She was active, always going. She's kind of Peter's counterpart, is yeah. the way I look at her. She's always doing, yeah, she's very impulsive, trying to impress people by, you know, her actions and her accomplishments and achievements. And Mary is not passive, but reflective, listening, sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from his teaching. And of the two, Jesus said that Mary had chosen the good part that can't be taken away from her. And he rebuked Martha for her busyness and her distractedness. Yeah. So what happens here? Jesus is coming towards Bethany, and about two miles away, Martha comes running to him, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died which I think validates what you were saying a moment ago, that if he had arrived before Lazarus' death, they had they would have pressured him to heal Lazarus rather than just to let him die or just to be there and comfort him in his last hours. Yeah. She she definitely would have done that, as and as we will see in a moment, so would Mary. And I don't know if he would have been able to resist that temptation. So that might be the explanation about his waiting, but I think that he you know was waiting to make sure that he can make a very clear sign about who he is, as we'll see in just a moment. But he reassures Martha uh, here, apart from Mary, and gives her a little comfort prior to the miracle. And his conversation with her is is rather touching. Uh, he's, he says, she says in verse 22, and I'm not sure if this is like a confession or a request, but she says, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, what is she doing? Just, you know, giving him a confession, I know you're the Son of God. Or is she hinting, I know that even now, you could do something about my brother. Uh, later on, she seems puzzled by his request to remove the stone. And so maybe that's not on her mind. But yeah. that John leaves us hanging as to what she means there. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And that's a reflection of the typical Jewish understanding of resurrection. That it was only going to happen to all people at one time at the end of time. And that is why so many people disbelieved in Jesus' own resurrection when it occurred. Because their understanding of the scriptures was not that the resurrection would be one person first followed by everybody else at the end of time. They believed in a general resurrection at the dead. Nobody had taught anything about a resurrection happening before the end of time. And so she's referring to that. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. Now, in our, in our count of I am statements, what is that? What number is that? Five? Should be five or six. I think it's five, yeah. I think it's number five. So we have here, uh, I am statement number five. I am the resurrection and the life. And everyone, he continues, who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Beautiful confession statement, very similar to Peter's, very similar to what we say, but she adds this last part, who is coming into the world, which is, many people believe is an amalgamation between you know, the prophet prophecy of Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses says, God will send a prophet like me into the world. Yeah. And then uh, the Elijah prophecy of Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which also has this language of coming into the world. And uh, we know that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah, but maybe she was kind of putting these ideas together, and, and it's interesting to talk about. But it's part of the confession and part of his identification as the Christ or the Messiah there in, um, what was that, verse 27. Uh, so that brings us through the, the prelude. Oh, I forgot about Mary. And all I'm going to say about Mary is she she also has an interaction with Jesus. It's very similar to her sister Martha, except for the fact that she was at home, stayed and waited for him to come. And, uh, of course, she went out. Uh, when he got close by, and she said the same thing to Jesus that her sister said to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, in verse 33, sees her weeping. And he sees the Jews who had come with her weeping. And the text says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. King James has that he groaned, and literally the word means to snort with anger like a horse. And it has to do with just violent displeasure. And um, A.T. Robertson says this indicates that Jesus was struggling for self-control. And uh, John continues to say that he asks, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then we have the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And there's a mouthful in that. And and that's one of the things that we're going to talk about in the second section of the episode. Uh, why did he weep? What was it all about? What did John mean in including that? But moving through the reading, we get to verse 38, the actual miracle. Uh, it's only 35 words long in the Greek text. You compare that to the lengthy prelude that we've just uh, read up through verse 32. It's relatively short, but he's moved again, verse 38, And when he came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Which makes me think her comment in verse 22 was more of a confession than a request. I mean, if she had seriously been asking Jesus in verse 22 to raise her brother from the dead, then she would not have been surprised by this. She would have been full of hope and joy and excitement that he's asking for this, but she's pushing back a little bit, giving him a little resistance uh, because of the smell and the odor. Now, I find that interesting uh, because of some things that I've read, and this is just some, this is where we go off a little bit, Mm -hmm. but 
It's just, um, it has to do with some of my favorite stories, uh, some of them fictional and some of them non-fictional. Uh, maybe you've read The uh, Martyrdom of Polycarp. Have you ever read that? Uh, not, uh, in the Apostolic Fathers? Not the entirety of it, no. It's a true account of the death of a second-generation Christian, a disciple of the Apostle John, in fact, named Polycarp. Now, mm -hmm. at the time that it happened, Polycarp was 86 years of age, and uh, the Roman Empire was really crushing down on Christianity, and uh, particularly those Christians who would not worship the emperor. And so uh, Polycarp is part of those who are gathered up for execution because of his faith. And they ask him to renounce Christ as they are tying him to a stake to be burned. And he says something to the effect that for 86 years I've been true to Christ. I'm not going to leave him now. And the soldiers really do not want to put this elderly statesman to death. Yeah. He's so well respected. He's an elderly man. You imagine uh, folks that you know in their mid-80s doing this to them, even for a, a, a Roman soldier with a heart that's as hard as a diamond, this would be, this would be very difficult to do. Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, Polycarp refuses to recant, and they light him on fire. And according to the account, now this is where I'm not sure if we're moving into fiction. This is not inspired material, so mm -hmm. I don't know if we're moving into fiction or if we are reading an actual thing. It's quite possible that spiritual gifts were still possessed at this time, and I guess it's possible that this could have been a miracle or a sign, but uh, the one who wrote the account down, who saw the account, said that uh, the odor was not what you would picture uh, the smell of burning flesh to be. Picture, mm -hmm. you don't picture a smell. Yeah. It's not what you would expect it to be, yeah. but rather it smelled pleasant like baked bread. So, mm. according to him, Polycarp smelled like a bakery when he <laughs> was lit on fire. Now, this is something, this superstition that the death of good men and the death of saints is something that uh, avoids putrefaction and decay and odors is something that uh, crosses cultures. And especially if it hangs on in Christianity, one of my favorite books is uh, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, and there's a scene in which uh, the mentor of one of the main characters named Delosha, he dies. And he's, you know, he's laid in state. I'm not going to read the book now. Huh? I guess I'm not going to read the book now. I'm not spoiling it. I'm not telling you the main dies. This is, this is a... Uh, well, he's not one. The, the main character didn't die. His mentor dies. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I think so his name is Zosima like the, or the something. Final like that. pages of the book or anything. No, no, this is like this is like in one of the earlier pages, like page three hundred and fifty. It's a long book. Yeah, it sounds like I'm not reading this book anyway. Oh, well, that's a joke. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he dies, and uh, his disciple or his student there, Alosha, who's a, a monk in the Russian Orthodox Church, he he is he is uh, already grief stricken, but he becomes more grief stricken when the body begins to smell. Because there was a superstition that the bodies of saints do not do that. Okay. And he was looking for his mentor to be somebody greater than any other person who died. That he would not. That he would actually give off a sweet smell rather than this smell of death and putrefaction. And so he almost loses his faith over this thing, mm. the smell, the odor. And I think about that 
I don't know that there's really a tie-in, but I think about mm-hmm. these things. The odor of death was something that Christians really began to latch on to, and I don't know why they didn't think about Lazarus when they considered Polycarp and when Dostoevsky was writing the story, and he was probably referring to a superstition that had already existed. I don't know that this came from his imagination. But, um, you know, I it's hard to forget this, this statement from... From Martha, this yeah. protest about her brother, and he in the King James version stinketh. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's yeah. hard to forget that. But um, it's what you would expect. You know, the Jews, unlike the Egyptians, did not embalm their dead. They did wrap them in spices and treat their bodies with respect. But they did not remove the organs and the blood to preserve their bodies and mummify them. They would uh, pretty much wrap them up in these spices and set them in the tomb, and they de- decomposed fairly quickly because of that. Yeah, now there was kind of, well, according to Kaufman, in rabbinic tradition, there was some significance to that being dead for four days. Do, you have, do we want to come back to that in the next section? Um, probably, because I, okay. I think we're long on time here. Okay, yeah. Because of my whole, what death smells like. Polycarp and the excursus. Brothers' Care of Mints. Caramel. You need to read it. Caramel, guys. If you're going to be a human being, you should read that book. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. Marshall Keeble famously said that if he had not said Lazarus, the whole cemetery would have come out of the tomb, so he Mm -hmm. had to specify the person. Mm -hmm. Uh, The man who had died came out, and imagine this. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Like a mummy. Yeah. I mean, just like the old mummy movies, he's wrapped up in these death clothes. Uh, very would have been a very strange, startling sight. And there's the miracle. Like I said, only 35 words in the Greek text. Now, the Jews get together, and this is what you referred to in the opening. Yeah. And they start organizing because they realize he has publicly risen someone from the dead. Everybody knew, because Lazarus had been dead so long, it was well known throughout the city of Jerusalem, that this man was dead. There could be no doubting it. Jairus' daughter was a different matter. You know, Jairus' daughter, she died, and very quickly afterwards, Jesus raised her from the dead. But Lazarus, no question. So they had a real problem on their hands. And the real concern comes out in verses 47 and 48. Uh, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and said, "'What are we to do for this man performs many signs?' Notice no denial of his miraculous ability. Just fear of losing their their influence with the people. Yeah. And uh, so they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I think that is a clearer motive than maybe any other, except for Matthew's uh, statement in Matthew 27, 18, that 
they delivered him over for in out of envy. So envy was definitely a motive too. But they were also afraid that if a powerful revolution began among the Jewish nation, Rome would come and stamp it out very quickly. And they were afraid and their concern was more for their nation than it was for their souls. Uh, Caiaphas was the high priest and he said, Nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He was making more of a political statement, not knowing that he was being a prophet here and predicting that Jesus would die for us spiritually to, yeah. to save us from our sins, which is another point of irony in John's gospel. Uh, one last point in the reading, verse 55 tells us the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So we're closing in, even though we're in the middle of the book of John, Closing in on the end of the story, if we're talking about a timeline here. Yeah. And a lot of people find that when they realize that for the first time, it really strikes them that, you know, by the time we get to John 12, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. Yep. Uh, Because, you know, we've still got, you know, all the way to chapter 21 to get to the end of the story. But John really slows down at chapter 13, or really chapter 12, and uh, zooms in on that last week and gives yeah. us a glimpse uh, in in the magnifying focus of of the events of that last week, which are very important. Yeah, and we get a good cliffhanger here at the end of this chapter because uh, you know they're wondering. The Jews are all sitting around wondering, uh, wondering what do you Jews. think? Yeah, <laughs> what do you think uh, that he will come? To, that he will not come to the feast at all? So. They're, the Passover is coming up, mm-hmm. and everybody's in Jerusalem wondering if Jesus is going to show up, because everybody, the Jews now, the high priest himself, is plotting to kill him. So let's see if he comes, if he dares to come to Jerusalem and purify himself according to their custom mm-hmm. for Passover. Okay, so in verse 9 is where we want to pick up and look at our first issue going deeper into the text of John 11. Jesus has this really, I guess, odd, for lack of a better word, response to what the disciples say to him. Verse 7, Jesus says, okay, now we're going to go back down to Judea. The disciples protest, say the Jews were seeking to kill you. Are you going there again? And Jesus doesn't say, yeah, we're going to go. Yeah, we'll be fine. He says, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So he kind of has this, it never really gets explained. They say, Let's not go down there, because it's dangerous. And Jesus says, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If you walk in the daytime, you can see. If you walk in the nighttime, you can't. Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go talk to him. Or let's go and awaken him. Mm-hmm. So it's just, to me, odd and difficult to find the exact application 
And I know... Uh, it was for them, too. Yeah. Because finally, uh, you know, they're... they're you know, he, he also throws this in that he has fallen asleep. But they're like, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. And they're, they're, they're not getting it, so he has to speak plainly to them finally by verse 14. I think he's using a simile in what you're talking about in verses 9 and 10. You know, uh, he's definitely not speaking straight to them. He's, he's speaking in a riddle. Yeah. Uh, the question is, what, what is he saying? And the only way to get the answer to that is to look at the context. And the context, as you have pointed out, has to do with their fear of his getting stoned and their getting killed alongside of him in the process. Yeah. Going back into Jerusalem where it was very dangerous for them at this point. Um, you know, the only way that I can really read this to make any sense out of it is that he's talking in terms of the days that God has given you on this earth. You know, and I've heard a lot of people express this idea that you, your life is not in your hands. God has a plan for how long you're going to live. Your days are numbered, and when it's your time, it's your time. There's nothing yeah. you can do about it. I've heard a lot of people actually find comfort in that idea because it takes... You know, if you're in the hospital these days with technology, we feel like we can overcome everything. And there's always these questions that family members have on their minds. You know, was there more that we could have done if this, if we had gone to the hospital on this day instead of this day, would we have saved his life? If we had chosen this procedure rather than this procedure or this medicine rather than that one, would we have been able to do something? And, you know, it's very comforting to just be able to sit back and say, it was in God's hands when it, it was that person's time and uh, there was nothing anybody could do. There were no mistakes made. He didn't die because somebody made a mistake. He died because all of us die. Life is brief and uncertain. And there's a sense of that in what Jesus is saying here. Daytime referring to life and nighttime referring to death. Daytime is when you're able to walk and work. Nighttime is where you stumble and you die. Yeah. And he's saying, you know... We're going to go down here and do the work that we've been given to do. While it's still daylight. It's still daytime. God's going to take care of us. We can still do this. Night is coming. And when night comes, we'll stumble and we will fall. But uh, there's 12 hours in a day. There's, in other words, time to do this. Mm -hmm. And there's 12 hours in the night. There's time for that as well which kind of yeah. mirrors his statement that he makes a lot throughout the book of John, my hour has not yet come, or conversely, my hour has come, yeah. which he'll say in chapter 13. And I think we need to remember that this is the gospel of John also. And throughout this, there have been we have seen the imagery of light and darkness John, throughout yeah, the whole gospel. Yeah. And we started off saying that Jesus is the light of the world. And so... I you know the parallel this is here the, the symbolism is is signifying something different here, don't you think? Well, I think it could be you know while walking, uh, if you walk in the day, you don't stumble because you have the light. And what's approaching, he's saying you know we're still in the day, the light is still here. The night is approaching when the light is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And this this could be kind of an allusion to hey. Um, my hour is coming, you know, 
It is getting close to the time of my departure when the light will be gone from you. So maybe and it comes at night. Of, we may be reading too much into this, but yeah. on the evening of the the Last Supper, he is arrested mm-hmm. that night, very late, in the darkness. Yeah. It could be a reference to when the light of the world is going to be taken away from the world. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, the great thing about John is he gives symbols that are very effective in giving you all kinds of meanings. Yeah. I think either way it could, you know, can apply. Now, is that exactly what John meant? It's possible. Yeah. But, you know, we I don't want to down, I don't think we should downplay the uh, illustration of light and darkness certainly based on how much John uses it in his gospel, so. Right. Interesting, very interesting response from Jesus right there. And so I guess the next thing we want to move on to is verse 35. The shortest verse in the English Bible, not in the original, though. Mm. It's actually not the shortest. Yeah, that's the way you can win a Bible trivia competition. Look smart and maybe <laughs> kind of act like a jerk. What's the shortest if verse the in the Bible? the question ever comes up. Yeah. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Nope. In English, maybe. What is it? Rejoice evermore? I don't know. <laughs> I just know it's not. I used to know. I think it's First Thessalonians 5 something rejoice evermore which is one word in the original yeah and you you took us here and weren't wasn't you weren't prepared to finish it but no. that's not what we're that's not what we're talking about this verse anyway no i i don't know if this is the direction you're planning on taking it but the question that arises that i've that i've uh, dealt with before is why is he crying if he knows he can heal lazarus there's something bigger going on here so why is he weeping? And what kind of weeping are we talking about? You know, I, I've thought about this a lot. Because it's something, when you preach this sermon, that's something you're always supposed to say. Yeah. But I really don't think it's that hard for us to understand. Uh, I agree. Now, people will try to quibble over, hey, he knew he was going to rise, raise him from, I always have trouble, rise, raise, <laughs> rose. Resurrect. Uh, He knew he was going to raise Lazarus up. So why would he be crying? Um, I think it's pretty plain in the text why he's crying. Look, you know, funerals are sad. Yeah. They're sad. We know that Christian loved ones are going to rise. Maybe not the next day. We know... But it's a lot different from saying bon voyage to somebody that you know you're going to see again after a long trip at a funeral. Because yeah. death is horrible. I mean, the thought, let's get a little morbid here, but the finality of it, the suddenness of it, that here the corpse is rotting. This yeah. is his friend. So the humiliation of the decay of, of life is is awful. And then to see these sisters that he loved weeping and breaking down in, in, in that way, that is what touched him. And John is very clear about that. Yeah. Because verse 33, when he saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, that was when he was deeply moved. 
Yeah. That's when he starts the groaning or the grunt, whatever the sound was, some audible sound as he fought for self-control over his own emotions. Yeah. That that is what's going on here, and I, you know, I'm I'm. You were going to say a lot. I'm probably no. I thought you know, that is exactly. But what is it that that the preachers tell us all the time about this? Well, you know, he was really weeping. Not he. He obviously wasn't weeping because Lazarus died because mm-hmm. he knew he was going to bring him back. He was weeping because. I don't know. He, oh, okay. I thought. <laughs> you, you I thought this was going to be. He was weeping because he had to bring him back. Have oh, you ever heard that? Because he didn't want to take him away from the comfort of paradise, I guess. Yeah, because because you know he had to bring Lazarus back, and Lazarus he did bring Lazarus back into a controversy, which we'll study next week in verse in chapter twelve. They're they're not just seeking to kill Jesus; they're seeking to kill Lazarus because Lazarus has become quite the celebrity, having been dead and. Coming back yeah. from the dead, the Jews are going to want to kill him. Yeah, because he's, he's proof. living proof of Christ. Yeah. That's exactly right, and and that's bad. And and I get that argument. I get it, but the context doesn't support it, and human experience doesn't support it. Yeah, because I know that that you know we we had a mutual friend who died, and her funeral was last week. Yeah, and I know without a doubt in my mind that she is coming back. You know, that she's living now, that I will see her again, that, you know, I believe in an afterlife, and I believe that about all my Christian friends and family members who pass away. That doesn't take all the emotions out of a funeral. That doesn't turn me into a stoic, and it shouldn't. And so, you know, I've heard people express guilt over feeling like feeling sad when they lose a husband or a wife. You know, uh, this this lady had been married to her husband 63 years. Mm-hmm. And her husband preceded her in death by four months. And uh, she was deeply grieved, and that contributed to her death. Yeah. Not, not in a, in a, you know, I realize people listening don't know who we're talking about. We're not talking about suicide or anything like that. Yeah, she, yeah. she was in poor health already, and grief will do some terrible things to your body. And you're in stress, and so she, you know, died four months later. Um, like many couples do, it works yeah. that way a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's wrong to as... say stop that crying. Yeah, your your crying means you don't believe in heaven. No, it just means. I mean, it's similar to Paul and the elders um, of Ephesus. You know, when he right. sees them for the last time on earth. They all cry because they're mm-hmm. sad to see Paul go, you know. And he Paul talks about his death of, of his time of departure. So I mean, it's the same. It's the same kind of scenario, you know. If somebody is gone, they're going to be gone for a long time. You don't know how long. I mean, because it's sad when, you know, a wife has a husband go overseas uh, for military. Very sad. Very emotional. You're not going to see them for a very long time. And I agree with you 100% about the emotions at a funeral. And when someone dies, it's very sad because that person that you love so much is gone for a period of time. Now, you have the hope that keeps you from going crazy and keeps the grief from taking over. You have the hope that you're going to see them again. You don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Right. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 
Right. But I think yeah, Jesus... Grieve. Yeah. I think Martha, Mary, their weeping is totally uh, natural, justified, not anything. And Jesus doesn't uh, reprimand them saying, why are you crying? Dried up. Yeah, you know that she uh, that he will be raised again. Why are you crying now? He cries also. He joins in on the crime. And it's because... and I. Now I'll agree with the preacher saying he's not crying because he because Lazarus is dead because he can bring him back. I don't think that's why he's crying. The reason he's crying, as you said, John spells out. He's deeply moved because of the emotional state of all the other people of Mary, Martha. He's crying because of his compassion. Is what it looks like to me. Yeah, but yes, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But. Let's say um, you see somebody beat your dad up, and he's going to make a full recovery, but you see him beat up till the point that his his face is all bruised oh, up and yeah. battered, and he's lying on the ground crying, and mm-hmm. you've never seen your dad like that before. Mm-hmm. Would that upset you? Yeah. Okay, this is worse. His friend is dead. And is decaying. Not moving, in a tomb. Stones over in front of it, and he stinks. So seeing that happen to a person, even when you know they'll make a full recovery, seeing somebody go through an awful surgery that they're expected yeah. to live after, and having all those hoses and things coming out of them, yeah, is very emotional. So, um, sorry, folks. This is uh, yeah. you know very. Kind of a depressing subject, I guess, but yeah. I'm trying to hold well, the, back because there's a great application yeah. to make here. The application you know. is definitely not depressing. The application no. on this is it, it's awesome. Yeah, it is. And we'll, it'll it'll redeem it'll redeem us from the doom and gloom that we're talking about yeah. right now. I just don't think he was weeping because he was about to resurrect Lazarus. Um, no. You didn't like say after they unwrapped him. I'm sorry, friend. I brought you back. Yeah, you know, and I I don't think the context like, supports that kind of a that kind of an attitude for what happens next. I mean, I know they plot to kill Lazarus, but there's no evidence. Well, I guess there's none for the contrary either. But there's no evidence that they catch him and kill him. Um, but maybe there is something. John writes his gospel long after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If I'm correct, maybe not long after. I mean, I think Matthew, it Mark, was, and Luke. Yeah, I think it was. So it's long several after. decades. Matthew, Mark, Luke don't mention Lazarus. Mm-hmm. They might not have mentioned him to protect him, maybe from the Jews. No. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't. Maybe seem, by the time John writes it, Lazarus has died again. He's already dead. Very yeah. possible. So it. I don't know. It's if an interesting thought. Yeah, but that's, another that's, thing to point. Unless, are you done with this? Can I move on to? Yeah, Still the, dealing with Lazarus. We need to move on, yeah. Yeah, we got to do this quick. Still dealing with Lazarus. Um, another thing just for think. It's interesting. I don't think we're talking about the same Lazarus when we talk about the Jesus telling the story about Lazarus and the rich man in mm-hmm. Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting that both of these men are named Lazarus. And I know Lazarus is a really common name. But just the whole... Means God is my help. Yeah. The idea here... Uh, the whole point of that story about Lazarus and the rich man is even if we send somebody back from the dead, people aren't going to believe. 
And then when you get to mm. the story of Lazarus, they bring Lazarus back from the dead. Still, people don't believe. They still, still, the Jews, Caiaphas himself, the high priest, which the the irony of that guy being the high priest and saying what he said, maybe we should talk about that for a while, but if we have time. But the irony of Caiaphas being the high priest and saying to these people, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better that one man should die for the people and the whole nation should perish. Well, Caiaphas, you don't know that either. You're speaking on political terms. You have no clue what Jesus is really doing and what his death is really going to accomplish. So the irony of Caiaphas, he's supposed to be the guy that is, I guess, the most in tune with God as the high priest. He yeah, is supposed, supposed to, be, to be. He's the one that goes into the Holy of Holies at the once a year. He's the guy that is supposed to be the closest to God. And he has no clue at all what Jesus is doing, what this resurrection means. He refuses to believe, even though Jesus has raised a man from the dead. So I think it's just interesting that but, Luke's story yeah. mentions a guy named Lazarus that dies. Now, I know the context is different. We don't know. This Lazarus is probably not a poor guy. He seemed like beggar. a poor, covered with sores, yeah. begging to be fed by the crumbs that fell off a rich man's table. No, I, I, I think that, uh, well... Man, I, I've had I'm, I'm stopping myself from so many bunny trails here. It's yeah. not even funny. Um, it just might be. But I, I'm up. glad you pointed that out because I think a lot of our listeners would be connecting the two men together. Because you said it was a common name. I don't know how common it it was. It uh, the only two places it pops up in the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, two. are places that have to do with people after death, one who's on earth after his death and one who's in Hades after his death. And so it's really interesting, really interesting. And, and you know, I yeah, looked up the meaning of Lazarus thinking it might have something to do with resurrection or afterlife, but simply God is my help. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in John 11 to, to chew on. There's a lot, there are more things I like to talk about. I don't think we have time to dive into all these things when we come back and do our second round of 66 we can talk about it wrap this up with a few applications as is our custom, as we are wont to do. As it is half past the hour of four o'clock. Oh, so we've been at this an hour. Monday afternoon. Yes. In Leeds, Alabama. Alright, lesson number one. Love hurts. The idea here is that sometimes you have to apply tough love because true love does what is best for the individual, not necessarily what the individual wants. It, it puts the other person's welfare before your own. I'm thinking about verse 5 where John says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then verse 6 begins with the word so. 
which connects five with six. So you you know you think it's going to say so he, he brought him went. cupcakes. Yeah. So he went and got flowers. Yeah. So he immediately left and healed Lazarus before he died. Yeah. But it says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Yeah. Which made them suffer more. But he points out that he's doing this for a very important reason. And where does he do that? Well, he says... He says, oh, in verse 4, it's for the glory of God. Right. And that the Son of Man may be glorified. And that's better for them. It was better for them to have their brother die so that God could be glorified than it would have been for them to have their their brother healed and him yeah. glorified to an extent, but not to this extent. Yeah, and he says that a little more plainly in verse 14. Well, I don't know how it could be more plain than what he says in verse 4, but I guess he says more about it in yeah, verse 14 and 15. Yes, yeah, that's what I was looking for. Go yeah. ahead and read that. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Right, yeah. For your sake, mm-hmm. not not for his own, he's not thinking about himself. Yep. He wasn't like, well, I'm tired, I don't want to go. It's for your mm-hmm. sake that I'm glad I was not there. And then John goes back to his theme that we've been seeing over and over again, that you may believe. Yeah. So he's he's exercising tough love here. Let's go ahead and do the Thomas one. No, no, wait, wait. Let's let's talk about verse five again. Okay. Okay. So, I, lesson number two would be: it's okay to have close friends. It's okay yeah. to have best friends. You'd be surprised at how many people struggle with this when they start thinking about the um, quality of Christian love. They worry that they have some people they like better than others. Like they should just love everybody equally. Yeah, love everybody equally, so it's not, you know, you got to include everybody on everything that you go and do, and you can't spend more time with one person than another. And a lot of people really struggle with that. But I think that it's very clear from verse 5 and from general, you know, knowledge of Jesus and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that he spent more time with these three than he spent with the general population of Bethany and Judea. It's very clear that he spent more time with Peter, James, and John than he did with the other disciples the other night. Yeah. Uh, he had people that he was closer to simply for the fact that they resonated better. They mm-hmm. built him up more. They refueled him. They Their personalities were closer together. Now, that doesn't mean that there's some people that, you know, I don't buy into this I'm not talking about the idea, well, I love him, but I don't have to like him. That I don't believe in that either. Because the word for love, phileo in the Greek, has to do with warm affections towards another, and it is used in general commands for Christians to love one another. So God wants you to feel warmly and like and have a liking for for everybody, particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ. However, having a close friend, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's just... It, it, it's an impossible statement to make where, where you have to be friends with everybody equally. I mean, well, what about your spouse? 
Yeah, how do you get married? Kids. Yeah. About your family members. You know, I think you obviously are going to have more. But you've heard that before, right? And people are concerned about that. Yeah, especially you hear it a lot directed at people in the kind of jobs that we have. Yes. Uh, that's maybe that's why we're both thinking about it. There's cliques in the church. Yeah, you know, as ministers and elders, and you know, even in as a youth minister, that's something you know that teenagers are very conscious of. These little cliques. Um, well, and really, at every age, cliques are a thing because people are always looking for a place to belong. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they want a sense of belonging somewhere, and but you know, it like take for our, our youth group for example. And we might erase this later. But you take our youth group, for example. We have a group of about 10 to 12 teenagers that are active, regularly involved in things. Now, there's some of them that just by no fault of anybody's get along better with certain people in the group. Now, and so when it's time to sit down and eat, that's who they sit by. That's their best friend. That's who they want to sit by. Is there anything wrong with that? No Unless they're neglecting everybody else in the group because they're so exclusive to their buddy, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong. There's a line. You're saying there's yes. a line there. Yes, there's nothing yeah, wrong with having a best friend or somebody that you get along with more. But the problem comes in if every time we get into that youth room, we have three or four people on this side of the room, three or four people on the other side of the room, and like that's it. And if two people from different sides are in the room, there's no conversation going on. Right. Then we have a problem. I mean, just look at Jesus. He did his fair share with the multitudes. Yes. He earned this time away from everybody and with these three individuals that he loved to be with. Mm -hmm. You know, and they earned it too. It was as good for them as it was for him. It was better for them than it was for him, I'm sure. Okay, let's talk about one of the guys that maybe uh, Jesus did not like to be around. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. That's obviously yeah. not true. He hadn't picked him. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, we talked about whether or not to do it, and then I, I decided we we got to do a lesson on this. Okay. Now, lesson number three, disciples are not perfect. And we're yeah. going to use Thomas here. Yeah. Uh, Thomas, in this comment, let us also go that we may die with him. He sounds like a teenager. Yeah. He sounds like me. (laughs) That's why I wanted to include this, because I've heard the Thomas apologists handle the book of John in a a way that I just don't agree with. They go through John and say, you know, we have this phrase, doubting Thomas. That's not fair to Thomas. Thomas was the bravest disciple Jesus ever had. Why in... John chapter 11, when he's saying, let us go that we may die with him, he's being serious. He is ready to die for Jesus Christ. And in the upper room, when he said he wouldn't believe until he was uh, would put his hands in Jesus' side and, and feel the scars in his hands, why, that's Thomas showing real evidential faith. The kind of faith we... No, Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see and believe. Yeah. Blessed are you, Thomas, for you've seen and believed, but blessed are those who do not see and believe, which is us. We don't get to feel the scars. Mm -hmm. So he's not saying that Thomas is the kind of faith that all of us have to have because we don't get that kind of experience. It's not available to us. 
I think it's okay to say that Thomas had a few flaws. Yeah. And one of them was that he complained all the time. <laughs> yeah. Every time you see this guy, he is complaining. This is what we said in our little break that we took in between. Thomas, to me, looks like he's just saying, whatever, fine, yeah, let's go. We can all <laughs> die, and then I can say, I told you so. That's kind of what it looks yeah. like he's saying. Because they just said, are we really going to go? And Thomas doesn't say, you know, okay, guys, we believe, let us go. What happens, happens, let us trust in the Lord and see what happens. He says, let us go also so that we may die with him. Yeah. (laughs) Now, just based on the actual words alone, if you remove the context, the words by themselves look good. Let us go so that we can uh, die with him. Yeah. But when you put it in context and you take into account... Now, it could turn out that we're totally wrong on this, I guess, but the, the context points to... Thomas is just saying, whatever, man. Fine. Yeah. If this is what you're going to do, we'll go. And, I, and I'm grateful for little comments that John included and the others included about themselves in these gospel accounts because it tells me our lesson that disciples are not perfect. I don't have to be perfect in order to follow Jesus Christ. Thomas wasn't, and yet Thomas, you know, tradition says he died, he did die Yeah. with him. And uh, that a great part of the world was evangelized by this man. Yeah, he did Uh, it anyway, even though he complained. Yeah, he went. He he shouldn't have complained, but he did. But he still went. Because so he's a human being. Yeah. All right, all we have us, to move. Yeah, well, the application obvious. We all, I think, have that attitude at some point. Yeah. Okay, number four. We serve a sympathetic Lord. Now, we went into verse 35, what Jesus wept meant. And mm. it is both of our opinions that he was weeping out of sympathy for Mary and Martha and the other Jews that were there. Uh, you used the word compassion a while ago. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of what you see in Romans twelve fifteen, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I think you see that in action, definitely. Yeah. Here in John 11. Yes. Because he's so concerned and... I guess concern for is the right word. Concern with the well-being of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Mm-hmm. As you pointed out, not just Martha and Mary, but he's also sad for Lazarus, who's dead and decaying. You know, and it, to put that back on me, you know, when bad things happen to people, am I really touched like I should be? And, you know, if I'm not, maybe that means I'm not really concerning myself with the same kind of love that Christ has for me and that Christ had for Martha and Mary and for Lazarus. And, you know, I guess it just makes me stop to think twice about, you know, am I allowing myself to be tenderhearted as Christ was? Or, you know, because we all, in our culture, we kind of have this, well, there's a big camp of, like you mentioned earlier, stoic, you know, don't cry, you know, I guess, uh, you know, be tough or whatever in front of people at least. Mm-hmm. 
you know, to make it easier. But, you know, Jesus cried. Um, and that was the point. You know, it's Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, with yeah. our weaknesses, but was tempted in all respects as we are yet without sin. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's a sympathetic Lord. He certainly did not have a calloused heart to not be able to feel for people or with people. And it reminds me of Ephesians 4, uh, 17 and following, where Paul's talking about um, Gentiles who were once far off having mm-hmm. calloused hearts. And then when he gets down to the very end of this, he says, you know, that is not the way you have learned in Christ. Yeah. We have not learned calloused hearts from Christ. What we have learned from Christ is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Somebody somebody close to you, something great happens to them. Promotion, have a child, get married, come into some money. I don't know. Any good thing that can happen. You know, are we genuinely excited for them? And we can't lie to ourselves about whether or not we really feel happy or sad for somebody. Now, you can outwardly show gladness or sadness very easily, but we cannot lie to ourselves about, well, somebody at church, something great happened. You know, baptism, I think, is the number one thing I think of. When somebody really decides to devote their life to Christ, do we really feel happy? sitting in church and I know this is kind of a long way to take it from Jesus being sad about Lazarus dying but with the whole concept of compassion and rejoicing with those who rejoice weeping with those who weep you know when someone's baptized in church Sunday afternoon Sunday night what is our mindset what are we doing when we're sitting there now are we just singing the songs killing the time thinking oh man I was going to get out of here and do this and this and this And then afterwards, are we walking down to hug the person, to say something to them? Not because we feel guilty if we don't, but because we actually genuinely feel good about it. And I know we're out of time, but there's, you know, just this, I think we get lost. We have lost in a lot of things this idea of being tenderhearted, rejoicing, and weeping. Yeah. We have to include in our lessons this number five that there is a resurrection. Uh, Jesus makes this fifth I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. This is a symbol that what he does with Lazarus here is a symbol of things to come. Mary, uh, Martha rather, talks about the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus says, no, not that resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Mm -hmm. And the Jews have always believed in resurrection, but Jesus is talking about something different from the standard conventional thinking of the day. He is going to take that even further soon when he rises himself personally from the tomb in a glorified body and ascends into heaven, promising that we will all be like him in the end when our bodies come from the tombs. And we'll have, we'll have an opportunity to talk about that more Oh, yeah. Another time, but that's really, really the point of John 11 and what we're seeing with, with Lazarus. Remember what we see in the signs of John. Did you say this was the seventh sign? So this is the last miracle, yeah. not, not counting, of course, Jesus' resurrection. 
But these signs work like living parables. And this is the truth that this parable is meant to point us towards. That's all the time we have. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can contact us at akingsley at arcfc.com or dkaiser at arcfc.com. Our Twitter handle is The66Podcast. Our website is The66.net. Next week, we end Jesus' public ministry and phase into another portion of the book of John, which has his private ministry. Join us for that episode next time.